Hosanna, was an interesting word for the people to shout when Jesus rode into Jerusalem. It comes from Psalm 118 that is sung during Passover, which our Jewish neighbors celebrated yesterday, where they remember the dramatic deliverance from the empire of Egypt. Hosanna is also sung at the Feast of Tabernacles, or Sukkot, where people wave branches and build makeshift booths to remember the time before there was a temple. And Hosanna was shouted as a greeting of acclamation on the arrival of Greek generals, Jewish kings, Roman governors, and Maccabean revolutionaries. Yet no matter the context, Hosanna was always a cry for help. Stephen Schwartz got it right in Godspell with the song, We Beseech Thee, Hear Us. Hosanna was a plea for immediate action. There is a fierce urgency in the word. In Hebrew, it means, save us now. Deliver us now. Grammatically, you could call it an imperative. The people were not politely asking for their freedom. They were demanding freedom, demanding salvation, demanding liberation. They were literally crying out, we want Hosanna and we want it now. The people of Jesus march on Jerusalem were like the 23-year-old chairman of SNCC and would-be Senator John Lewis at the March on Washington in 1963, who famously said, how can we be patient? We want our freedom and we want it now. Senator Lewis Dr. King and the other leaders of the civil rights movement were demanding freedom, demanding freedom from Jim Crow and segregation, systemic racism and white supremacy, freedom for justice, equality, self-determination, freedom for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, freedom for beloved community. Their demands for freedom changed the laws, changed America, and changed the world, and yet we are still not fully free from the evils they faced. And so in our nation today, the cries for salvation and deliverance continue to rise up from new generations of singers proclaiming, we want Hosanna and we want it now. What were the people shouting Hosanna for in Jesus' day? What did the people waving leafy branches and spreading cloaks on the road need to be saved from? It would be easy for us to say the Roman Empire. Lord knows they needed relief from Roman occupation. In fact, many revolutionaries from Galilee had already tried to overthrow their Roman oppressors and failed. As a Galilean himself, Jesus was no fan of Rome. His teachings regularly undermined Roman rule over Jewish lives, but Jesus' focus in this final campaign of his life was on a target much closer to home, much closer to home for him and his people. While the Roman occupation and its heavy taxation caused Jewish lives to suffer, there was a powerful institution in Jerusalem the empire had corrupted, which had become an oppressive force of its own magnitude, Herod's temple. 
which the people called the mountain. In Jesus' day, the temple was not just a place of worship. It was a governing center, a police station, a courthouse, a prison, a marketplace, a church, and a bank all rolled into one. It was the headquarters of the entire political, economic, cultural, and religious system of the day. All my life, I've heard preachers and professors claim that Jesus was shocked when he showed up at the temple and found that it was a place of commerce with buying and selling and money changing and sacrifices. But that is completely ridiculous and has no basis in history. It makes Jesus look like a holier-than-thou, self-righteous zealot who is extremely concerned with the purity of the temple and out of touch with the reality of the average person on the streets shouting, Hosanna. We've even titled this story wrongly as the cleansing of the temple to limit Jesus' actions. But Jesus would not have been surprised to find money changers and people selling sacrifices in the temple. During high holy days like Passover, people were required to make a pilgrimage to the temple where they would come and have to pay a half shekel tax. Pilgrims were also required to make sacrifices which they had to purchase at the temple. The presence of money changers or people selling sacrifices would not have been shocking to Jesus. They would have seemed almost necessary for the way in which the temple was constructed. Moreover, Jesus was not having a bad day or a sudden temper tantrum when he saw things like this going on in the temple. Remember, Jesus had already been there to scope out the place the day before after riding in on a donkey. If he was going to be shocked and incensed into a fit of rage, it would have happened on that first day. But Mark tells us Jesus came in and looked around and then went home. The first day was a recon mission in advance of the direct action Jesus was planning on the next day. When Jesus cast out people buying and selling, turned over the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves, he wasn't just condemning those particular practices of exchange and sacrifice. Mark tells us Jesus did not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He shut down the entire system and then began teaching from the book of Jeremiah. Now, can you imagine what would happen If someone shut down the stock exchange or shut down the government for a day, can you imagine how much would be lost? Can you imagine how angry the traders and investors and politicians would be? That is what Jesus did in the temple. And so it's no wonder the chief priests and scribes immediately tried to kill him. But it gets worse. When we imagine Jesus was surprised, reacting in spontaneous rage, or solely focused on casting out those buying and selling in order to cleanse the temple, we are essentially taming Jesus. Taming him even in his most untamed moment. We are making him into what he wished he was. A person who came to purify the temple, to cleanse the temple, 
by reforming its political, economic, and liturgical practices. We want Jesus to be the kind of person who had a bad day, got really mad at something, acted out a little bit, and then overall is a nice guy committed to reform. We want Jesus to be a reformer, a purifier, a cleanser, because we love reformers. We know things in our society are in need of reform, but reform takes time, and we like that about reform. We want patient reform like those that John Lewis was preaching to on the mall. Reform gives us time to adjust, time to prepare ourselves, to take it slow and steady, and to get used to the idea of the change that might be coming. There's only one problem. The people outside waving branches weren't shouting, Hosanna, when you get the chance. They weren't shouting, Hosanna, in due time, or Hosanna, down the road, or Hosanna, but we know you need to wait a little bit. Hosanna, but we know it takes time. No, they were shouting, Hosanna, now. Rescue us now. Deliver us now. We beseech thee, save us now. We want Jesus to be a reformer because we hear the cries of Hosanna now in our own time. And we're okay with change, but just not now, not yet. I hate to be the one to break the news to you, but Jesus was not a reformer. At least not when it came to the mountain of injustice that was Herod's temple. People don't kill reformers, they kill prophets. You don't get crucified for being a reformer, but for being like John Brown, Rosa Luxemburg, Medgar Evers, Viola Luzo, Malcolm X, MLK, Fred Hampton, Harvey Milk, or Marsha P. Johnson. It would be obvious to us that Jesus was not a reformer if we knew anything about fig trees. That's right. The story of Jesus Great shutdown of the temple in Mark is sandwiched between two incredibly odd interactions with a fig tree. Jesus came by looking for figs on the way into Jerusalem, found none. So he cursed the fig tree, even though it wasn't even the season for figs. The next day after leaving the temple, Jesus walked by the fig tree again, and it had been withered to its root. Now, what are we supposed to make of Jesus acting like a petulant child and performing what seems like ecological violence on a poor fig tree. You'd think that Jesus, of all people, would be a tree hugger, not a tree killer. But there's this crazy story. If you read scripture literally, this is where you have to get off the Jesus train because either he hates trees and has lost his mind or there was something deeply metaphorical going on here. So what in the world was this all about? Ah, if we only knew about fig trees. A fig tree was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden. A fig was most likely the forbidden fruit, and it was most definitely fig leaves that Adam and Eve used to cover their bodies in shame when they told themselves that they were naked. Later, the blossoming fig tree became an emblem of peace and abundance used in the golden ages of Israel's history throughout the book of Deuteronomy and Kings. The fig tree was a vision of abundance. 
Abundance of the Garden of Eden, of the promised land flowing with milk and honey, of the reign of Solomon and the messianic age that was to come when all things would be restored. And then in rabbinic imagery, the good fig was a synonym for a good person or God's righteous community of justice-seeking people. Figs were the most fruitful of all trees, and so many pilgrims to the temple in Jerusalem would bring figs as an offering of the first fruits of their labors, given as a sign that they were just people, a sign of their righteousness. And so by the time of Jesus, the temple itself, in all its abundance, was symbolized by the fig tree. As Americans, we too use the fig tree as an idyllic symbol of our own vision of the promised land. Our first president and founding father, George Washington, loved to quote from Micah 4 where it states, Everyone shall sit under their own vine and fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. Washington referenced that scripture 50 different times throughout his life as a depiction of the good life of a peasant farmer freed from military oppression. His vision for America encapsulated in that verse. The phrase is notably found in a letter that Washington wrote to a Hebrew congregation in Rhode Island where he proclaimed, May the children of Abraham who dwell in this land continue to merit and enjoy the goodwill of all the other inhabitants while everyone shall sit in safety under their own vine and fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. Lin-Manuel Miranda referenced Washington quoting Micah IV in the Hamilton musical, and Amanda Gorman included it in her inaugural poem, The Hill We Climb. The abundant fig tree has always been a vision for America, a vision for a state that takes care of all of its people, of all races and religions, that makes sure We all have what we need, land and sustenance, that provides due time for rest and leisure and ensures everyone the ability to be truly safe, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness under our own vine and fig tree. But if only Washington had kept on reading in Micah. The vision of the fig tree shows up again in chapter 7, where Micah cries out for salvation like the people shouting Hosanna on the streets. He proclaims, woe is me, for I have become one who, after the summer fruit has been gathered, finds no cluster to eat. There is no first ripe fig for which I hunger. The faithful have disappeared from the land, and there is no one left who is upright. They all lie in wait for blood, and they hunt each other with nets. Their hands are skilled at evil. The official and the judge ask for bribes, and the powerful dictate what they desire. Thus they have all perverted justice. When Jesus cursed the fig tree, he was conjuring the prophet Micah, who cried out that there were no more good figs that there were no more good people doing justice or righteous, only the treacherous, violent, bloodthirsty, and greedy. And now Mark only quotes from Jeremiah 7 when Jesus was teaching in the temple, but I bet Jesus went on to the next chapter in Jeremiah 8 as well, where it says, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. 
They have treated the wound of my people carelessly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Therefore, they shall fall and be overthrown and destroyed. I wanted to gather them, God says, but there are no figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I have given them has passed away. Jesus had not come to Jerusalem to purify the temple, or to cleanse the temple, or to reform the temple. He came to abolish the temple and destroy the temple. Jesus said, this is the sign I give you, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Those are not the words of a reformer. They are the words of an abolitionist who came to bring Hosanna now. Hosanna immediately. Hosanna without delay. We like to imagine we'd never be one of those people who went from shouting Hosanna on Sunday to crucify him on Friday. But when the people crying, save us now, on the streets heard Jesus tell them that their salvation required bringing down the temple, which was the center of political, economic, and religious life in their community, their cries of salvation quickly turned into a demand for blood. Jesus wanted to give people the opportunity to live into God's great abundance, into that abundance where there would be no enslaved people, enslaved to the scarcity of the temple, where people who were rich and poor would share what they have in common so no one goes hungry, where sins and debts would be forgiven in a beloved community. Jesus invited people to abolish Herod's temple in order to establish God's dream of abundance, and they chose to abolish him instead. We all want reform, don't we? We love reform because we think reform will save us. We want criminal justice reform, police reform, gun control reform, health care reform. We want immigration reform and tax reform and economic reform. We want to reform America. We want to reform the church. We want to reform the system and reform the institutions that we love. We don't want to destroy the system or abolish it. No, that would take things too far. We just want to reform it. So if Jesus is telling us some of the institutions we want to reform are actually fig trees that bear no fruit, that are withered at their root, or oppressive mountains of injustice that must be thrown in the sea. Then many of us will ignore him or turn on him at some point and begin yelling, crucify. Our cries of Hosanna will quickly turn to whispers of how we might get rid of him. Our cries of salvation will quickly turn into threats of violence and murder. To reform a system, one scholar claims, is to adjust isolated aspects of its operation in order to protect the system from total collapse, whether by internal or external forces. Such adjustments usually rest on the fundamental assumption that these systems must remain intact. 
even as they consistently produce misery, suffering, premature death, and violent life conditions for certain people and places. Reform, this scholar says, at its best is often casualty management. Jesus knew there were some systems and institutions that cannot be reformed. Some systems and institutions must be abolished or destroyed. Slavery could not be reformed. It had to be abolished. The death penalty in Virginia this past week could not be reformed. It had to be abolished. Praise God. Some things simply cannot be reformed. There are some things that must die so that something new can grow up in its place. The temple was the political, economic, and religious system that was oppressing the poor and the marginalized. Jesus knew there was no reforming that mountain. There was no reforming that withered tree. There was no choice. It had to be chopped down. It had to be thrown in the sea. Like one of his parables said, people had already tried digging down to the roots and packing manure around them as fertilizer and trying to give the tree another year to see if it would bear fruit, but it never worked. So the time had come for the farmer to chop it down and plant something new in its place. This is the way of life on earth, the way of nature and creation. Something must often die in order for something new to be born. In fact, that's exactly how figs are made. You may not know this, but figs are thousands of individual flowers folded up inside, creating the perfect shape for a wasp to crawl inside and pollinate while she lays her eggs. The wasp soon dies after giving birth and her body's nutrients are absorbed into the fig to feed her children who then grow and tunnel their way out, carrying the pollen from the fig they're born into to another fig where the cycle begins all over again. Every fig on every single fig tree is both the tomb of a wasp and the womb of her children. This is the way of God's abundance. Creation and our faith are infused with the sacred logic of resurrection, not reform. We all enter Holy Week shouting, Hosanna now! But most of us are hoping that Jesus will bring cleansing instead of new creation, reform, instead of resurrection. But as Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a person, he bids them to come and die. And so regardless of how much we'd rather have reform than resurrection, this holy week as we journey in the shadow of the cross, it is time for us to look inside of ourselves at all our fears and delusions and out at all the systems and institutions that we participate in our lives and ask the hard question, what needs to be chopped down? What needs to be thrown into the sea? What needs to be destroyed so the new creation God is unfolding can blossom in our world? What needs to be put to death so the poor and marginalized can be restored? What needs to be abolished 
so that beloved community can be reborn? What needs to die in us and in our world for God's dream of abundance to come to life? What do we need to bury in the ground so that after the crucifixion and resurrection have come and gone, we can be people who keep on shouting, we want Hosanna and we want it now. Amen.